0: Welcome to the Soil Solutions Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Nadd, and this podcast is being produced in partnership with High Plains Journal and Great Plains Regeneration. With me today is Zach Stuckey. Welcome, Zach. Hi, Jess. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. You know, with High Plains Journal and the publisher, it really is my mission as a son and grandson to grower just here in the heart of Kansas that we make sure soil health and our content is always practical and real. And no matter what cropping system you're in, that it impacts your bottom line immediately. Excellent, healthy soil equals healthy people, planets and animals and we're excited to be here. All right. Welcome back to the Soil Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Nadd, and today I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Erin Silva. How are you doing today, Erin? I'm
1: doing great. Thank you for having me on.
0: All right. So Dr. Silva is an associate professor in the plant pathology department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research and extension program focuses on sustainable and organic cropping systems, including cover crops, Cover crop-based no-till production, variety grain selection in organic environments, and the impact of organic management on soil biology and physical properties. Erin, you've also launched a comprehensive organic training program for farmers in the upper Midwest called O-Grain. And you work very closely with organic, not only organic uh, farmers, but other industry leaders in Wisconsin and throughout the Upper Midwest and serves on the Wisconsin Organic Advisory Council. So it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, Erin. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about how you got into working on these different um, no-till systems, no-till organic, this the sustainability systems that you're working in is just phenomenal. So how'd you get here?
1: Sure. Um, um really my interest at looking at cover crops and how to maintain our soil resources began back in uh, around 2003, 2004. My first position after getting my uh, PhD was with New Mexico State University. So I was down in the desert region, um, right down by the Mexican border. And The systems there were profoundly different than the systems I work in now in the upper Midwest. They were uh, primarily irrigated systems, um, arid cropping systems. Um, And because of the uh, issues with water and irrigation, uh, the the soil was often left bare um, if there wasn't a cash crop being produced. So as I had the opportunity to drive across New Mexico and visit farms, one of the things that struck me was um, the the visible soil loss at certain times, with wind uh, just causing soil to blow across the road, um, dust storms, and you could really profoundly see um, the the impact of the, the way that crops are being produced on our ability to maintain our soil resources. And down in New Mexico, I was actually working with vegetable crops and, and not with grain crops, um, But as I was looking at, you know, what can we do differently to maintain these soil resources but still produce high-quality, productive vegetable crops, I ran across some research that is essentially cover crop-based no-till, but for vegetable crops, um, where a researcher out of West Virginia, Ron Morse, had used, killed cover crops um, as mulches uh, to not only suppress weeds and reduce herbicide use, but to maintain soil resources and keep the soil in place. So that was really my my inspiration for starting to pursue the cover crop-based no-till research that I'm still doing today.
0: Was that like a chop and drop? Is that what they were doing on the uh, the vegetable um, just kind of, you know, either pulling some of the, the, the weeds and then just leaving the, leaving them there around the vegetables as like a, a compost, of a way to cover the soil?
1: No, no, it was very similar to the work we're doing now with organic no-till soybeans, where we were growing um, different cover crops, either cover crops that were surviving throughout the winter, like our winter annual cereal grains, like cereal rye, or down in New Mexico, we were also using... Um, uh, winter-killed uh, winter, um, winter killed cover crops as well, like sorghum Sudan crass. And just like we're doing now with our um, organic no-till soybean systems, we were either mowing or roll or crimping those cover crops um, or letting those cover crops winter-kill and directly seeding our vegetable transplants right into the, that killed mulch.
0: See, that's the process I want to talk about because on the podcast right before this one, we had Rick Clark talking about his 7,000 acre organic no-till system. And to, to some folks that maybe don't have uh, the background on organic no-till, it's a pretty advanced system that Rick talked about. But really, it's a system that more people can achieve than what they realize. So can you walk us through what this organic no-till uh, cover crop or even, even just what what does it mean to be no-till with cover crops? And then how do you keep advancing the system?
1: Yeah, and I, I have to admit, I really um, incredibly admire what Rick is doing on his farm. Um, it's amazing what he's been able to accomplish. But this is still really a high-risk system. And I would, uh, at this point, say that to achieve a zero-tillage, complete no-till organic grain system is... is um, I know Rick's doing it, yeah. but I would I would be real nervous to see farmers, um, you know, try to go, um, you know, full full bore in that direction. There are certain phases of the organic grain rotation that we can be very, very successful in limiting the amount of soil disturbance, and that's particularly the soybean phase of the rotation. And even in Wisconsin, where we have a pretty short growing season, um, there's ways that we can strategically sequence crops where we can, uh, through the use of of killed um, cereal grains, mechanically terminated cereal grains, such as cereal rye, eliminate the need for uh, mechanical cultivation. But the complete zero till organic system. It's something that we're still working really, really hard on, uh, but it it is extremely, extremely difficult to um, strategically be able to sequence the the crops and the cover crops together and have the right tools, both with mowers and and roller crimpers, to to suppress those cover crops in a way that it's not impacting our cash crops but yet still being able to um, limit weed growth as well as cover crop growth.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the the core of a lot of what you're doing is just being able to get out there and trial some of these different systems to be able then to give that education and that outreach to the producers that need it. Over the years, have you seen that increase? Or do farmers have more, um, is it more accessible, the, this information? And then also talk about the different types of producer mindsets that are coming in and looking for change.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that more and more farmers are starting to realize and recognize the, the value of regenerative agriculture more broadly. And the the concepts of cover crop-based no-till and integrating um, continuous living cover into the organic rotation is is really uh, directly in line with the principles of regenerative agriculture and what some incredibly innovative farmers, both organic and conventional, are doing to look at maximizing uh, our rebuilding and regeneration of our soils and reducing inputs that are needed, both with respect to managing weeds and insect pests, diseases, as well as limiting the soil fertility inputs that are needed on mm-hmm. their farm. So it's it's been incredible over the past several years to, to see the rise yeah. in regenerative agriculture and to uh, see that the innovation that's going out on farms and the networks that are developing for farmers to be able to share those experiences with each other. Um, there still is a lot that needs to be learned. Um, and that's where you know, the innovation that's happening on farms and at different nonprofits, as well as the universities, uh, to keep that communication going and share experiences and learn from each other is really critical.
0: Yeah. Do you see this growing season is unlike any we've ever had. And, and, you know, when you're in agriculture, no season is the same. You know, every, every growing season is different. But it does feel like there's an increased pressure for producers to be able to understand their systems better because of the wild and crazy markets and the input costs that you're seeing. Do you see producers coming from the conventional mindset is it easier for them to, to shift over to this regenerative mindset and then eventually go to organic? Or how does that usually play out in your experience?
1: Yeah, I, I've seen it play out in several different ways. Um, oftentimes, at least in my experience, the, the farmers that are leaders in the regenerative ag movement have often been early adopters Generally, with respect to sustainable agriculture and, and soil stewardship, so many of those farmers have been long-term no-tillers yeah. um, in the conventional world, and as they've adopted no-till practices and layered on different um, sustainable practices beyond strict no-till, such as adding crop diversity into their rotation and particularly the addition oh. of cover crops, um, you know that's where they've they've really um, you know, seeing the benefits of more of a systems-based regenerative agriculture type um, approach. So uh, there, um, as we look at the transition to organic though, um, because organic, it does rely um, to a certain extent on soil disturbance for weed management. Um, As I mentioned, to to go to a complete zero-till organic system at this point. I I am still confident um, within the next um, decade or two, we're going to continue to make uh, incredible headway to getting there, um, not only from the agronomic perspective, but also from the equipment perspective and from the genetic perspective, both from the, the cover crops and the cash crops that we're growing. But to get to a complete zero till organic system at this point um, is 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 very very challenging, if not impossible. Uh, so farmers that are um, you're really at the cutting edge of regenerative agriculture, thinking about going organic. Um, in my experience, that's the biggest hurdle
0: mm-hmm. is
1: um, giving up that no till system, and if they're going to organic, having to do some soil disturbance after many decades oftentimes of, of having a no-till operation.
0: So do you think that the, you know, a healthy thriving biological system, is there a certain threshold of disturbance that the soil might be able to tolerate or is that an unknown at this point?
1: Yeah. And I think as, as, um, you know, much within our, our agricultural systems, it's really context dependent, regionally, um, dependent, and even looking, you know, within a certain region, I think there can be differences depending on, you know, where there's the greatest risk, uh, depending on environmental factors or weather factors, which are continually changing too, from year to year. And last year in Wisconsin, we were experiencing a drought at this point in the growing season. And, and this year we've had, um, adequate rain I don't think I'd say excessive rain but we've had a good amount of rainfall so every year is is a bit different um but in terms of um you know can the system withstand some soil disturbance in terms it really I think depends on what um what are the risk factors um so in terms of soil biology or soil structure um And and certainly all tillage is not created equal as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's different sorts of tillage, um, different sorts of uh, depth, speed, and and, uh, implements that you're using. But from what I've seen from long-term studies, that the system can recover from soil disturbance events, particularly if they're managed in a regenerative way, where we are very deliberately and purposefully coming back and taking care of those soil microbes and, and oftentimes that's through the use of diverse cover crops um, through feeding those microbes, um, through um, you know limiting um, other types of disturbances, including chemical disturbances. But the, the, so, the soil environment can bounce back, as well as, you know, as we're looking at developing resilient systems, elements of soil structure can bounce back as well, uh, but, but certainly uh, exposing the soil depending on um, heavy rains or wind or whether you're uh, farming on a hillside, um, opening up that soil can expose uh, you know, that, that soil surface to soil loss through either wind or water erosion. Uh, but again, there's ways to be very strategic and deliberate about when you're applying tillage and then how you're able to maybe come back right in and plant a cover crop um, and manage that system in a way where that those windows of risk are, are limited.
0: I love that, the, the windows of risk. And, you know, that's key. We're definitely in a, a place-based people. I, I know that farmers understand this, but... Agriculture and the decisions you make—it it can be field by field on an entire operation, and so it's place based and it's understanding, like you said, the confidence of risk. I absolutely love that. So you know, here in the, yeah,
1: I was just gonna say, even some of our best um, organic grain farmers, soil stewards here in Wisconsin, where. Um, you know, we are a, a major organic grain producing state, but we we are a, a state that has quite varied terrain. And a lot of our farms are located on um, areas that have uh, hills and, and valleys and ridges. Uh, and like you're saying, even within a given farm and from field to field, uh, these farmers will do different uh, crop sequences or different cropping strategies depending on the particular risk of, of those certain areas of the farm. So if even within a, a farm itself, there's different decisions that need to be made to uh, look at how do we reduce risk and how, how are we the best stewards of our land.
0: Oh, absolutely. We see that. Uh, you know We produce Soul Health U every single year in Salina, Kansas. Huh. And even in the state of Kansas, I always try to make sure that I note who's from Eastern Kansas, what speakers are from Western Kansas, because there's such a significance in the different types of, of cropping. And a lot of it has to do with precipitation and soil type there. And, and, you know, all of these other markets also plays a big role in how we crop. And so I love to hear that, that story about that. So also in the high plains, um, You were talking about the future looks like you think that producers will be, will have the confidence and that our universities will be able to back up the research on um, reducing tillage, eliminating tillage. And living in Kansas, we know about dust storms. We know about, um, there was a significant dust storm just a couple weeks ago. Uh, My son was playing baseball and it was to the point where I was sitting in the stands and I couldn't see the kiddos in the outfield. Um, because the dust was so bad and I'm also looking at my other kids that that had got we had all gotten sick after that baseball tournament for a lot of reasons but the dust had a lot to do with it as you look at this conventional regenerative organic if you just look at farming in general how urgent is keeping the soil in place
1: it is extremely urgent I think that is a really a a unrecognized crisis that we are facing as a nation with respect to food security is the extent of soil loss that is happening on our farms um, and the need to, you know, quickly change the way that we're managing how we're producing our food to put the focus on our soils and look at the, the, the longer term impacts, uh, not only with respect to uh, managing our land and and stewarding our land, but also how that relates to how we view success on farms and how that relates to economics. And I think that's something that Rick talks about, Rick Clark, um, quite eloquently in his presentations. And oftentimes I know he gets asked about yield in his system and he often Um, kind of turns that conversation and instead of focusing on yield is is looking at how his system is reducing his need for inputs, how it's stabilizing his yield, and how it's affecting the overall economics um, and profitability of his farm. Instead of focusing on that yield number. And I, I think that this uh, mindset that needs to be adopted more widely across our agricultural community is, is not focusing so strictly on the annual uh, yield of the crop, but instead looking at uh, the, the economic impacts of what what is going to happen if we don't maintain our soil, and then with our practices that do maintain our soil, how that provides other benefits? So even if we we do see some um, degree of, of, of lower yields with some of these systems, we are paying less in fertility inputs we have less disease incidence, uh, we may be able to limit our insecticide applications. So really viewing that system more holistically, um, and then seeing the benefits over the long term versus just focusing on the short term um, annual outcomes.
0: Yeah, and I was actually doing my homework <laughs> earlier today, and I had listened to another podcast you were on, and that they had asked about Some of the criticisms in organic systems is that it can't feed the world because of the yields, and you, this had been a couple years ago, but I just wanted to follow up on that. It seems to me like the research is suggesting that we can still produce adequate food um, for the purpose of of what it's intended for, so how would you address that question right now of feeding the world?
1: Yeah, and that, again, is is, uh, certainly (laughs) context-dependent.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> regionally
1: dependent. But if from a lot of the long-term data that, that we've seen um, coming out of research trials at various land-grant universities, organic agriculture can be extremely productive. And I, from our trial at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that's looked at long-term organic management Um, side by side with conventional management of corn and and soybeans, uh, as well as alfalfa, we see that the yields can be quite competitive, and in most cases, uh, reaching about 95% of conventional yields, uh, certainly there there can be more challenging situations depending on the weather and uh, being able to accomplish timely weed management in wet years is one of the main drivers of seeing decreased yields in organic. So that weed management component is, is really a key piece to be able to address um effectively to be able to maintain these competitive yields in organic grain systems. But that's where these uh, cover crop-based no-till and regenerative systems really offer an alternative way of, of managing organic grain fields that decrease the reliance on mechanical cultivation, which which really can be a, a weak link with respect to maintaining high yields in organic production systems.
0: Yeah, and that's so funny because I just asked a question that put us right back into this fixed box. You know, whether it's about the yield, whether it's about, and, and really what we're talking about in these systems, uh, organic, regenerative, anything that's systems-based that is having us think about agroecology is... There's no one single lever that is going to, you know, I don't, you know, prop the system up and say, okay, this is it. This is exactly what we're going to do. It's everything working together. And so if we're just focused on yield and we're, we're decimating our soil resource, we're not going to have years of yield versus bushels of yield per a single season. We've got to be thinking in an infinite mindset. Um, to be able to have this longevity in agriculture. So that sounds pretty urgent from from the work you're doing as well.
1: Exactly. if, If we look at, again, that, that longer-term stability that, that Rick is often discussing in his presentations, uh, the, the degree of soil loss that we are experiencing, um, it is going to be impossible to maintain the yields that we're currently seeing on our fields. And I, I think that there are some places that farmers are really already feeling that, but um, So we we really need to, again, look at more of that balanced systems-based mindset of how do we create a system that, is productive, um, that, that is producing enough food to be able to feed our communities, both locally and in a more global sense, um, but, it, but is doing so in a way that, that we can be um, assured that we're going to be able to have that level of productivity decades into the future for our children and grandchildren.
0: Absolutely. Do you think that we have thought that soil is a renewable resource? And that maybe it's it's not in that same context. Um, what I'm trying to spit out here is that for a long time, agriculture has just felt like soil is just the medium, you know, input in, input out. But really what it is, is it's the complete life of, of the planet, you know, and we need to be protecting that soil resource.
1: And I think that is something that the regenerative ag movement has really um, been extremely successful bringing forward is that recognition, like you're saying, that that the soil is not just a um, a matrix for plant roots to be supported, but it's a living ecosystem that is extremely complex. I mean, there's interactions that are occurring um, underground. Uh, between the plants and soil biology and the soil biology and the the soil environment um, and nutrient cycling and disease suppression that we are just starting to scratch the surface on understanding. Um, And I I agree. I think that there was, um, and I I can't say it was necessarily ignorance per se, but I think a lack of recognition, and and I would extend this also to the research community of how vital uh, that soil biology and, and soil ecological community really was to the continued productivity of these systems, that it's not as simple as being able to replace nutrients, through NP and K, whether they be honestly synthetic or organic sources, we really need to look at how do we feed that soil biology through our management, through the additions of carbon, um, and through the additions of diverse uh, feedstocks back into the soil to support those soil microbial communities and create a more regenerative, resilient system that is less reliant on outside inputs.
0: You know, the urgency is there, but I also think that the hope and the optimism is what's so cool. And I got to, we, we actually met at a conference, a regenerative organic conference this past winter. I've never been to a better conference of, and it, just because that was the title of it, I would say most of the, all the producers in the room were conventional producers that, that had this understanding of what you just talked about and said, okay, I'm going to Figure out, I'm going to learn, I'm going to um, make connections to other people in my community, Find, find the crazy guy two counties down that's doing something different and figure out what he's doing. So let's kind of end cap the conversation. Is there any research you guys are doing that is just fascinating right now? Feel free to talk about your O Grain organization. You guys have had some big news with Cliff Bar, which is by the way, my kids' favorite granola bar—they seem to be everywhere. In fact, I pulled one out of the washing machine the other day um, because one of my kids had stashed it in their pocket. So, yeah, give us a little update on on where the hope and optimism is going right now.
1: Yeah, there is so so much cool work that's happening, I mean, and a lot of our work is in partnership with farmers and inspired by farmers and what we can do at the university, I think, is, is take a little bit of that risk and do some crazy things so that we take the, uh, brunt of, um, having, uh, our, our systems, um, not function as optimally as we would like and be able to deal with the weeds and the weed seed bank and um, some of the more crazy intensive management that might be more difficult for farmers. But we couldn't do what we do without the farmers that we work with and their inspiration and their ideas and their feedback. Uh, But, you know, I I mentioned um, earlier that and, you know, Rick, again, is incredibly successful and incredibly inspirational, um, and it's really making things work on, on his farm. Um, we still, uh, we are a little bit further north, so I think some of the things that he can do a little bit further south, um, it's just a little bit harder for us to do as, as we get into a shorter growing season but we're still working hard on making the uh, corn phase of the organic reduced till um, cropping systems approach work. And every year we get a little bit more um, further ahead in terms of our understanding and success of how to manage it. And again, a lot of that's in partnership with um, others, both farmers as as well as equipment companies that are bringing new technology and tools onto the landscape that are helping our management. Uh, So that's been really exciting. To see us get more success in that area and and see that uh, we we are getting to a system where uh, I think farmers will be able to adopt those techniques of rolling cereal rye and and vetch and planting organic corn directly into those terminated cover crop residues and be able to be confident that they're going to be able to get a productive crop at the end of the season. Uh, So some of the cool work we're doing related to that is looking at, you know, how do we manage fertility in the system? You know, always with an eye on reducing inputs, but really recognizing um, how the soil biology is interfacing with nutrient cycling so that we're able to, I guess, uh, you know, give some boost to the crop as the soil biology kind of catches up with uh, releasing nutrients to meet crop needs. Um, We're looking at, uh, evaluating specific corn genetics and even breeding corn for these systems. You know, as we look at our crop varieties that we commonly grow um, in our grain our rotations, they've been bred um, in systems that don't have a lot of um, competition. They typically are bare, clean fields, and they are uh, supplied with uh, nutrients through um, imported sources, um, and therefore they've been selected for a very specific environment, and to put those genetics into a field that we have cover crops growing alongside of the cash crop, the nutrient release and availability to that cash crop is different. Um, We're likely going to need different genetics and different crop varieties. So we've been really excited to start working with corn breeders, to evaluate not only our existing varieties, but looking at developing new corn varieties that are able to thrive in these very unique production environments. And I really think that's going to be a game changer. I think we do have the tools out there, um, but we really need the the will and the innovation and these extensive partnerships between Mm -hmm. farmers and researchers and industry and uh, crop breeders um, to be able to, to make these systems a reality.
0: I, I think that's phenomenal and I think that I love that you're able to do the research and, and now you're to a point where you guys are also going to be able to facilitate the education and outreach um, from your research. So it's really coming along nicely.
1: Yeah and that you mentioned um, our uh our uh, relationship or or, our benefiting from these industry uh, partnerships. And uh, the the partnership um, with uh, Cliff Bar, Cliff Bar awarded University of Wisconsin-Madison an endowed chair in organic agriculture and outreach. And that really was a recognition of the work that UW-Madison has done, um, not only the O-Grain program, but a lot of my colleagues uh, across the college and the Division of Extension working with organic farmers and, and working to develop these participatory models where the, the research that we're doing is is not uh, coming from the, the university directly, but is, is really a direct uh, product of these partnerships with Farmers and other organic industry players to to work together to create research to be able to implement that research and then be able to extend that research to farmer communities to see that adopted.
0: Well, and add on the the consumer knowledgeability to the whole mm-hmm. equation, and that really fuels a lot um, right now too. And I think two years ago, if you had if you had talked about major disruptions in supply chain. Um, even topics like nutrient density were still, there's still kind of some woo behind that. But boy, things have advanced in the last two years. And I, I'm just, I'm, I want to honor and give you total appreciation for the work that you've been doing for a number of decades and, and just keep up the good work. If you're available, we'd love to have you come to Soil Health U in Salina and maybe break down a little bit more of these systems and help producers with the the strategy and the tactics that they need to you know bring that soil back into high function.
1: I love getting out around the country and talking to farmers about soil health and integrating cover crops and regenerative ag practices within to their cropping systems. And I swear I learn as much from the yeah. farmers on these <laughs> travels and talks that I feel like I can provide to to my audiences. It's always a great experience to oh, learn from everyone across the country.
0: Well, and maybe maybe Kansas and January, that might be a heat wave compared to, <laughs> <laughs> to what you guys are getting. So pack your bags accordingly. Oh, <laughs> All right, Erin, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Fascinating discussion. And we look forward to following up with you soon. Thank you. Appreciate you joining us today. And for more soil health information from High Plains Journal, Please sign up, hit the subscribe button at the bottom of the page. I look forward to growing together.